The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Well, good morning and welcome to church, everyone. It's great to be here. I'm, my name is Ben Peacock. I'm a pastor at Rosalie Baptist Church. Um, I've preached here a couple of times before, and so there's some faces I uh, are familiar and I recognise, and there's some uh, plenty of new faces as well, which is exciting uh, to see your community growing here, the church family growing um, as we all seek to know uh, and love Jesus more and more. Um, so yeah, a little bit about myself. So I'm, I'm Ben, I'm married to Eloise and we've got three busy boys uh, and we are up here on holidays and it's our first holiday kind of for more than a week uh, since before COVID began. So you are getting a, a much more relaxed Ben than, <laughs> than there was about a week and a half ago. Uh, but we've really enjoyed our time up here and it is a great uh, privilege to be able to come and open God's word for us this morning. The reason it's such a great privilege to open up God's word is because when we look at God's word, when we hear it proclaimed, God is actually speaking to us. And so how about we pray and we ask for God's help that we would come to understand what he has to teach us through his word as we look at it this morning. So let's pray together and ask for God's help. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you long to communicate to us. We thank you that you have spoken to us through your son, Jesus and we thank you that you continue to speak to us through your written word, the scriptures. Father, we ask that as we consider your word this morning, as we consider this um, truth that Jesus is God the Son incarnate, we ask that you would help us to be more captivated with him, what he came to do at his first advent for us and that we would be more gripped by the salvation that he has won for us. Help us to know him and love him more and more. And Father, we long to see more and more people encounter the salvation that he offers all of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so um, get that first picture up there. Um, Many of you are Caloundra locals, but I'm not a Caloundra local, but I have a favourite part of Caloundra, which you should all see up there. Does anyone know what part of Caloundra that is? Moffat. Come on, the pastor gets it first. Come on, guys, you've got to be quick. So this is Moffat Headland. Now, this is a very special place for me because this is where I asked Ellie to marry me. This is where I asked her for a hand in marriage, and thankfully she said yes. But this is one of my favourite parts of Caloundra, and I love going back to this place because it has fond memories for me. But if you're on any headland, it doesn't have to be Moffa, but if you're on any headland, um, you kind of can see massive, vast spaces, can't you? One thing you can see from Moffat is when the pilot comes out from Malulabar to, to get the ships, you know that? The, the boat goes out and he goes and pilots the cargo ships or the, the cruise ships down the channel towards Brisbane. And so when I'm standing there with my own eyes, I can just see this tiny little speck going out, can't I? I can't see much detail, there's this tiny speck going out. But if I got a telescope, I'd be able to see way more. I'd be able to see the stickers on the side that says, Pilot. I'd be able, if I had an even stronger telescope, I might even be able to see him having a cup of tea while he's making his way out to the big ships. The point is, when you are on a headland and you've only got your own eyes to see, 
Everything is vast and massive. You can see the, the vastness of the beauty of that place. But when you have a telescope, you can actually zoom in with greater detail on each aspect that makes up that whole big picture. Over the last few weeks, you have been journeying through the Bible, looking at key Old Testament passages that point forward to Jesus. And so using this illustration, kind of imagine the whole Bible from beginning to end being like standing at Moffat Headland, seeing the beauty and the vastness of this incredible picture. But there are parts of the Old Testament that we have to zoom into to understand with greater clarity and detail what it is that Jesus actually came to do. And one of the helpful things about the Bible, and particularly in the New Testament, is that the New Testament authors always try and grab little moments to go and go, here's a little speck from the Old Testament that we want to unpack. Here's a part of the Old Testament that we want to understand. The further you zoom in, the more detail and clarity that we grasp. And the same is true when we think about Jesus and the story of Christmas. Because the story of Christmas is actually not the beginning of a story, it's actually the completion or the fulfilment of a story that has been um, told for centuries. And that's what you've been looking at over this series of God incarnate. And we are going to look at that again this morning. So over the last few weeks, Pastor Jimmy has been working through these prophecies in the Old Testament, working through how they point forward and find their fulfillment in Jesus. We've seen how at the first Christmas, Jesus is the fulfillment of the, um, the descendant of Eve who would come and crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3. He is the one that triumphed over evil and death through his death on the cross and his triumphant resurrection. Jesus stripped sin of all of its power. Jimmy unpacked um, in Genesis 12 from Abraham how Jesus is the fulfillment of universal blessing to the world. At the first Christmas, when Jesus entered the world stage, it is through him that this universal blessing came to the world. And last week, Jimmy unpacked the prophecy that Jacob gave to Judah about his descendants, that through his line, there would be a ruler who would come. One who would wield the scepter and rule as king over God's people. At this first Christmas, Jesus came to rule with all authority. He is the one who rules and reigns, and right now, he is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, in complete control. Jesus is sovereign over all things. And this is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Judah through Jacob's prophecy. So at the first Christmas, Jesus came to crush evil. At the first Christmas, Jesus came to bring blessing to the whole world. At the first Christmas, Jesus came to rule with love and justice. And this morning, we are going to unpack the opening of Matthew's Gospel, looking at the genealogy of Jesus and how this genealogy helps us to know more deeply who Jesus is and how he fulfills the story that was promised to David in 2 Samuel 7, which was read for us just before. Now, can I have a show of hands? Um, who, does, does anyone have a favorite part of the Bible? Give me a favorite verse. Yep. Zephaniah 3.17. Yep. 
same one, same one. What are the chances? Anyone else? Last one. <laughs> Last one. Anyone else got a favorite verse? Psalm 62.8. Nice. Whose favorite part of the Bible is the genealogy? Anyone? No. Oh, there's a, maybe, maybe. There's a hand there. I'm really excited to hear that your favorite part's the gene- genealogy. It's great. It's not usually what comes to our mind, is it? We don't kind of go, what a wonderful part of the Bible. There's the big names. They're hard to understand. There's history of the Old Testament that we're like, oh, I don't know it quite as well as I should. But anyway, we, it's so easy for us to skip over these parts of the Bible, isn't it? And so I don't reckon it's one, it's one of the parts of the Bible that aren't known very well. It kind of seems monotonous and a bit unnecessary. And it's, we kind of skip over it. But when Matthew wrote his gospel, he actually starts with it. And all of us know the beginning and the end of stories are really important. And so because it's there, we need to wrestle with it and we need to understand it. And as we look at this genealogy, we are going to discover three truths three stunning truths that this genealogy will teach us about the Christmas story. So let's dig straight in. Right from, so if you open your Bibles to Matthew um, chapter 1, that'll be really helpful. And we'll dig in. So right from the beginning, Matthew gets straight to the point about who Jesus is at the beginning of his biography of Jesus' life. Look with me from verse 1. He starts off, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here's the summary, guys. This is a book about Jesus, who is the Christ. Just quietly, that is a massive statement. We know this because he is the son of David. Again, massive statement. And we know this because he's also the son of Abraham. How is that for an introduction? For God's people, the greatest hope that they had, the promises that God had given them throughout their history are summed up in that one verse. And when they look back through their history, there are no bigger names than Abraham and King David. Abraham being the first one who received God's promise of universal blessing, King David being the one who received the promise of an everlasting kingdom in 2 Samuel 7. Right from the outset, we see that Matthew, he doesn't kind of ease his way into telling us the story of Jesus. It's explosive. He is saying, Jesus is the Christ, the son of um, David, the son of Abraham. It's like the old century equivalent, like like the old times equivalent of a mic drop, right? It's a massive statement that he is making here. Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the centerpiece. He is ground zero of God's promises being fulfilled. And so we see here that according to Matthew, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah who had been promised for centuries. He's finally here. According to Matthew, Jesus is the son of David's, the one who would rule God's kingdom, his everlasting kingdom. He's finally here. According to Matthew, Jesus is the son of Abraham, the man of faith par excellence, the one who believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. He has finally, finally arrived. 
And now that this Messiah has arrived, we're going to see how he fits in the whole story of this genealogy. So read with me from verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. The first thing we see Matthew highlight here is Jesus' royal pedigree. He is a descendant of Judah, we see that. He is the one from whom the royal line would come. Then we jump down to verse 6 and we see that he is also a descendant of Jesse, the father of David, note it, the king. You see, in this whole first section there is a poetic flow. The father of, the father of, the father of, and so on. But the poetic flow is stopped in particular, at David the king. You see, Jesus has royalty, royal blood in his family tree. He's the descendant of Judah. He is the one who will possess the scepter. He will rule as king. But not just is he the monarch, he is actually the one that will have the everlasting kingdom that was promised to David's seed. In 2 Samuel 7, we see everything that God had done for King David. David is so thankful to what God had done for him. And so David requests to God that he have a house made for him. As noble and as good as David's intentions were, this wasn't God's plan. Rather, God wanted to expand David's horizons, to see beyond the here and now and look forward to a day when... um, Righteousness and justice would not just be a temporary thing, but it would be permanent. It would be everlasting. And this would happen when God's chosen king would sit on the throne. And so in verse 12, God makes this promise to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you an offspring after you, who shall come from your body, And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, historically, we know that David's son Solomon did build a temple for God, didn't he? David didn't get to do it, but Solomon did. But the problem is, we know that his rule didn't last. Solomon kind of um, did things that God didn't want him to do. He, he married foreign wives. That was his biggest drama. And so we know that even though he built this house, this temple for God to live in, we know that this kingdom wasn't everlasting. It didn't last. And kind of as you follow the story of Israel's history, the nation gets divided into northern and southern kingdoms, and king after king after king continues to disobey God to sin, and to um, worship idols. 
It didn't last forever. And yet in verse 14, God says of this descendant of David, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And then in verse 16, he says, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So we get this picture that like David's not quite the guy, Solomon's not quite the guy, and so as the kings continue to roll out, there is this longing, this expectation for this king to finally come. The high hopes that this promise held for the people of God evaporated quickly as Solomon fell into sin. This promise of a son of David gave the people hope. It gave them expectation of that one day when God would visit. This promise of a son of David who would come and rule on an eternal throne would lay dormant, essentially, for 1,000 years. 1,000 years, around about that. And yet, when we read these words from Matthew, we see that Jesus is not only the son of Abraham, he is also the son of David. So Matthew wants us to see not only the royal significance of Jesus, but he wants us to see that this is the son of David who will roll out this eternal kingdom. And this is why in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is constantly talking about the kingdom of heaven. It's why he's constantly talking about the kingdom of God, because he is the one who is forging the way of this new kingdom. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is this king. He is the one through whom God's house will be established, and it is through Jesus that God will finally lead his people and rule his people as king. So Matthew, kind of like a barrister putting together a compelling case in a court of law, Matthew's kind of showing how Jesus fulfills all of these expectations in the Old Testament. As the son of Abraham, he will be the one through whom God's promise of eternal blessing, um, universal blessing would come. Matthew wants us to see and to know that Jesus is the fulfillment of this everlasting kingdom that had been promised for centuries. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. And this is confirmed for us in Luke 1.32, which should come up on the screen for you, where Luke himself writes, He, that's Jesus, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His king, end of his kingdom, there will be no end. The announcement of Jesus as the Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham, proves to us that God is committed to finish what he started. And this is the first stunning truth that this genealogy teaches us about the Christmas story. That God can be trusted with what he promises that he will do. For centuries, God's promise to Abraham appeared to be unanswered. 
There was always hope, but there was no fulfillment. For centuries, God's promise of an eternal kingdom appeared to be unanswered by God. There was always hope, but it always seemed to never get fulfilled. But at the arrival of Jesus, at the very first Christmas, these unanswered promises were answered in the most emphatic way. Because when we read that Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, God is saying to all of us, here is my answer to the promises I have made. Here is the answer. It is Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of everything that God has promised. He is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and we also know him as the Son of God. The first stunning truth that this genealogy teaches us about the Christmas story is that God is always faithful to do what he promises he will do. And the Christmas story is proof of that. So he can be trusted. Now, who here has ever been embarrassed by someone um, in your family? Might have been something they said or something they did to you. Has anyone been embarrassed by someone in their family? I'm seeing a few nods. Yes, there's a hand up for sure. I've definitely been embarrassed by my parents. At times in my life, I was um, very publicly embarrassed at my Bucks night. I don't go into details, but it, was, it wasn't enjoyable. Um, but yes, it's something that there's sometimes things in our own families that we can be embarrassed about, something we're ashamed of. And... My kids are almost getting to that age where they are going to be looking at me going, Dad, why are you doing that? You're embarrassing me so much. Well, in the US, there's a TV show called Finding Your Roots. Has anyone seen that show? So this show basically follows well-known celebrities, actors and TV personalities as they work with a historian to look at their family history. And so they kind of look at um, trying to understand who they are, more of the backstory that led to them, like significant things people in their family had done in the past. The point of the show is to help people understand who they are by understanding where they've come from and who their predecessors were. On one occasion, it was revealed to one of the celebrities, though, that at one point in their history, they had a family member back in the day who used to own slaves. And so when this revelation came to the surface, this Hollywood star was so embarrassed that they actually requested that this information not get put out on the show because they didn't want their, their character to be smeared or for people to have stories about them that weren't very nice. They were embarrassed. They were ashamed of this fact, which is it's not nice. It's not a nice thing at all. But it was interesting that they kind of didn't want it to get publicly aired. You see, living in a broken world that is tarnished by sin means that there are always going to be things in our life that we are ashamed of or embarrassed by, and there's also going to be things in other people's lives that embarrass us as well. There'll be parts of our story and our history that I probably don't even know about my own family that probably aren't very nice either. Something I might be ashamed of, something I might be embarrassed by or grieve over. So when Jesus, God's own son, enters into the world, we might expect to see a long list of flawless individuals. 
We might expect to see Jesus' family tree be a long line of heroic people, of um, living lives that you can tell stories of success, power and wealth and influence. But in reality, when the king of the universe entered into human history, he entered into this world, we actually see that he comes from a family that's well messed up, pretty broken. There's no way to sugarcoat it. Jesus' family history is dysfunctional. It is riddled with tales of brokenness, deceit, idolatry, murder, sexual misconduct, prostitution, and revenge. Take Abraham, for example, who lied to the king of Egypt about Sarah being his sister, not his wife. Take King David, whose lust led him to commit adultery with Bathsheba, who in this passage is referred to as Uriah's wife. She's not even personally named. And then he went ahead and sent Uriah out to the front of the battle and got him killed, trying to cover it up. Adultery, deceit, murder. Take Manasseh, whose reign is marked with idol worship and the shedding of innocent blood. The scriptures describe the reign of these kings that followed as men who had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Jesus' family tree is not pretty. It is littered with brokenness and sin. And yet Jesus surprisingly doesn't avoid this mess. He willingly enters into our broken human existence. He enters into our mess. Why? So that he can redeem us from it. It is in the midst of these seemingly dysfunctional circumstances that Jesus steps onto the world stage to rescue us from our sin. And this is the wonder of the Christmas story. That King Jesus, God's own son, willingly embraced our human weakness, our human frailty. He humbled himself, leaving the glory of heaven and taking on the form of a servant, taking on human flesh. We don't worship a God, friends, who is distant from us. Rather, we worship the God who leans in to our brokenness. He comes close to us. Friends, Jesus associates with us, even in the midst of our brokenness. The second stunning truth that this genealogy teaches us about the Christmas story is that Jesus brings salvation in the midst of brokenness. He doesn't avoid it, he leans into it. Jesus sees and knows our sin. Jesus sees and knows our brokenness. Jesus sees and knows our frailty. Jesus knows and sees our brokenness and our weakness. And even though he knows all of this, he leans in so that we can be rescued by him. Many people misunderstand the God of the Bible as someone who loves us conditionally. That, you know that kind of idea where it's like, yep, if I get my life right, if I live a good life, then God's going to love me. 
Have you ever felt that? I've certainly felt that. That God will only be pleased with me once I've actually got my life sorted out. But I've got to pick up my socks and I've got to put, put some effort in and then God's going to like me. No, that is not the story of the Bible. That is not the story of Christmas. That is not the story of the gospel. Friends, God pursued you. He lent into you, even in the midst of your brokenness. As Paul writes to the letter, um, writes his letter to the church in Rome, he writes, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you are in your sin, Christ died for you. God doesn't sit back waiting for us to fix ourselves, but he initiates, he pursues. The story of the gospel, the message of Christmas, is not about us doing better, trying to fix our brokenness and mess. It's actually all about us humbling ourselves before Jesus and inviting him to fix our problem. The Christian life is not about living a life to make God happy. It's about recognising that God has saved us and then living the life that will make us happy that he designed it to be. I don't know where you're at with Jesus this morning. Maybe there are parts of your life that you are ashamed of. Maybe there are parts of your life that you wish could be erased. Don't let that one go to air. Maybe it's a cycle of sin that you can't seem to break. Maybe there's a trail of broken relationships that you are ashamed of. Maybe you struggle with anger. Maybe you struggle with greed. Maybe you are caught in cycles of depression where you think you are just a burden on other people. Friends, I want you to know that Jesus, he's not going to avoid you because of your brokenness. The Christmas story tells us that Jesus leans into our brokenness and longs to redeem us. He longs to restore you. He longs to forgive you and reconcile you with God. And he proved that because he went all the way to the cross for you. Even though you might be ashamed of the sin in your life, you might even wish you could hide it from God. Know this, that Jesus already knows the worst about you. And he still loves you. He still offers you complete forgiveness. He still offers you complete restoration. And he still offers you complete hope of eternal life with him. Friends, Jesus knew your worst and he gave you his best. You might be ashamed of your brokenness, but Jesus isn't. He wants to restore you. This genealogy teaches us of, about God's gracious character and how he longs to restore his people by his grace. Friends, if you hear nothing else from this message this morning, please catch this. There is no sin in your life that can't be forgiven by Jesus. No sin that can't be forgiven by Jesus. There is nothing that you have done in your life that disqualifies you from receiving the forgiveness of Jesus. The only thing that will disqualify you from receiving the forgiveness is ignoring 
consistently ignoring his offer of forgiveness to you. Friends, please don't let this opportunity pass you by. There might be someone here who's never bowed the knee to Jesus, who's never accepted the forgiveness that he offers. I would plead with you this morning, reach out to the king who gave up everything, even his own life, so that you could be redeemed. It was once said by a a um, well-known theologian that the only thing that we contribute to our um, salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And it's true. But the best part about it is that Jesus is in the business of forgiving sinners. So I'd plead with you this morning, reach out to Christ, maybe even for the first time, and receive the forgiveness he offers. This brings us to the final aspect of this genealogy that we're going to uncover this morning. As we've already seen, there is a poetic flow that this whole genealogy possesses. The words, the father of, the father of, the father of. Earlier we saw how it kind of paused at David the king. But there are a few other places where this pattern is paused again, where the pattern and the flow is interrupted And every time we see a poetic pattern or flow get paused, that is a hint for you to pay attention because the author is wanting us to know something, right? The author wants us to know something. And we need to stop and think, what is Matthew wanting us to see? Why is this poetic flow being paused? Because he's probably wanting to say something really important to us. The first pause comes in verse 3, where a woman named Tamar is introduced. The next pause is in verse 5, where two women are named, Rahab and Ruth. The next pause in the poetic flow is in verse 6, with the unnamed woman who we mentioned before, who is the wife of Uriah, or Bathsheba. In the time of Jesus, it was almost unheard of for women um, to be included in legal documents, um, and, and it was very rare for them to be included in genealogies like this. So when it happens, we need to pay attention, don't we? But when we stop and think about it for a moment, there's something remarkable about these particular women. You see, the inclusion of these women reveals a startling claim that Matthew is trying to make about Jesus, not just about Jesus, but a startling claim for the whole world. Think about it for a moment. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, they all have one thing in common. Does anyone know what it is? No takers? No, it's all good. They are all Gentiles. They're all Gentiles. None of them have any Jewish heritage at all. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. Ruth was a Moabite. And Bathsheba was married to Uriah, who was a Hittite. On top of this, the background of these, three, these women, Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba in particular, in their backstory, they've kind of got a, a sketchy sexual past. It's not great. So to have four Gentile women 
and then three of them to have, a, 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 perhaps you could describe it as a promiscuous past, is startling. It's astonishing for them to be included in this genealogy. But what it highlights is the fact that Jesus' salvation is for all people. It's for everyone, both Jew and Gentile. And what does that call to mind? The very promises that were made to Abraham back in Genesis 12. That all of the nations, through the seed of Abraham, that all of the nations would be blessed. So in Jesus' family tree, there is a mishmash of sin and brokenness. There's ethnic estrangement, sexual misconduct, and the inclusion of these four women beautifully paints the salvation that God is delivering through Jesus. That it's going to be a salvation for everyone who receives it. Friends, Jesus' message of salvation is not limited by um, cultural boundaries. Jesus' salvation is not limited by a person's gender. Both men and women have the offer of the gospel freely and equally. Jesus' salvation is not limited by your ethnicity. And Jesus' salvation is not limited by our personal moral failings. Friends, Jesus' salvation is for everyone. For every tribe, nation, and tongue. That is what Jesus' salvation is for. That is who Jesus' salvation is for. And earlier in the message, we were talking about the fact that Solomon built a temple, but it still wasn't entirely fulfilled. What Jesus came to fulfill in this eternal kingdom that was promised to David, he would actually build a house. Do you remember when Jesus had that conversation with the woman at the well? There will be a time when neither the people will not worship in Jerusalem, but they will all worship Jesus. There will be a time when it's not the location, it's actually going to be given out when the Holy Spirit is given. And friends, that is ultimately fulfilled in our gathering here as God's people, the church. Where does God dwell? It talks about it in Matthew's Gospel again. When two or more are gathered, Jesus says, there I am with them. So in the coming of Jesus, we actually have the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 completely. It's an incredible thought to think that we are here in Caloundra Jesus started his ministry in Palestine, 2,000 years on. If, if the gospel isn't for everyone, we shouldn't be showing up here. <laughs> we are recipients of the fact that Jesus' salvation is for everyone. And that means for us, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, we have the pr great privilege to go out and tell the world of this marvellous salvation that Jesus has won for us. He defeated sin through his death on the cross. He defeated death through his resurrection. And friends, Jesus will one day return and judge the living and the dead as the son of Abraham, the son of David, and the son of God. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.